Episode 10, The Longest Day. But before I begin, let me just say the clue is in the title. Two weeks into my new life as a carer, I can already sense the hardest thing about all this is that every day is pretty much the same. And that's if things are going well. So, instead of living each day with me, I thought you might prefer just one episode where I outline the routine. I can't pretend this is garlanded with music or peppered with stories. Though my daughters and ex-wife are coming to lunch today as it happens. So please stay a while. Leanne arriving. Why everyone is darling, I have no idea, but she's got me at it now. It's me. <laughs> Just when you thought you was going to have a nice sleep. Eh? Most often, it's Leanne and me, morning and evening. I've met more agency staff over the past couple of weeks, and sometimes it could be Jocelyn or Annie or Sarah who comes by, but it's mostly Leanne. I think she's taken to us in some way, and she's good. She knows what she's doing, and I know she's on our side. Did you not sleep well last night? No. Oh, what? I'm tired, like bleary, really tired, jet-lagged. Sleepless night, hungover, don't mess with me tired. My own fault, perhaps. I'm probably going to bed too late for an early morning call at 7.30. Mum's invariably still asleep, and I'm not quite at peak efficiency, shall we say. I get up around 6.15. I try to give Mum a light breakfast before the carer arrives. She sleeps on her side at night to avoid phlegm building up in the back of her throat and forcing her to cough or choke. <coughs> Sitting her up in the mornings means tucking a slippery nylon slide sheet under her torso by flipping her this way and that and then tugging on the sheet to turn her from her side to her back. This is the correct method for safe moving and handling. I learned this on the manual handling course. The moment she's on her back, the coughing begins. So it's important to raise the head of the bed as quickly as possible using the electric control unit that hangs from the bed head. I also have the option of elevating the bed, so I can offer a glass of cold juice or a coffee or whatever we've decided on for breakfast without breaking my back or having to pull up a chair, which is why I've learned to prepare drinks and food before waking her and to have things standing by on the hospital table so that as soon as she is in position and awake enough to understand where she is and what's going on, I'm ready to feed and water her. Sometimes it's impossible or just too cruel to awake her before the care visit. So I'll delay things and give her some juice as the carer prepares the hoist. Then we'll remove her soaking wet pad, take off her nightdress or t-shirt and lift her forward from the bed by her arms to slip the sling behind her. Velcro strap done up. I will wrap my arms around her from behind whilst the carer swings her legs to the side of the bed. 
We'll hold her there, supporting her back, whilst we move the hoist into position and attach the sling ends to the two outstretched metal arms that will lift most of her weight. Once mum is raised and secure, we'll wheel her, dangling from the hoist, feet vaguely on the footplate to the shower, and between us, shift her weight to the shower chair in the cubicle. I'll go to make coffee, always breathing a sigh of relief, and the carer will wash mum. The shower chair has a commode function, in other words, a hole in the seat and a bucket underneath, so she can use it as a toilet at any point. The end result is pretty hit and miss. Constipation is an issue with Parkinson's, caused by a combination of the medications and immobility and the bowel itself becoming lazy. Laxatives work, but cumulatively, which means when the time is right, you get an elephant poo. The morning call is also my chance to change the bed. Linen is changed completely once or twice a week, and the Kylie, the absorbent incontinence sheet, daily. There's often a bit of leakage. Then, with toileting and showering complete, a mum wrapped in towels will hoist her back into bed to be changed into day clothes, rolling from side to side to pull on trousers and tops. Then we hoist her to the wheelchair and take her through to the living room to begin the day in earnest. There we are. Let's give your hair a brush. She's through to the front room. Looking gorgeous. Right, here we go. I'll get you a blanket. In the evenings, the routine is reversed. The lunchtime call is set at 12 noon. The afternoon call is 4pm and the evening call is 7pm. With the gaps between calls so short and a range of chores to be done, feeding three times a day, medicating four times a day, not to mention breaks for tea and cake, there's not a lot of leeway. If mum needs changing in the day, we do the whole thing again. Wheelchair to bed and bed to wheelchair. Though I have to say, most often she doesn't need a change at midday, sometimes even at four. And I'm beginning to think we could do without one of the calls. Good job. On the table. I'll bring you coffee and cake. Wait there, don't go away, will you? Where are they? I'm just going to get coffee and cake for you. I try to put routines in place, for me as much as for her. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Sometimes the expectation that such and such should happen, round about now, throws you completely when it doesn't. You make the meal, bring it to her, and she's fast asleep in the wheelchair, drooling. We stand there with a the plate of food in one hand, a drink in the other, at a loss for a moment before accepting defeat. Take the food back to the kitchen, return to her and wipe away the drool. You think about putting her back to bed, but the thought of the hoist and operating it alone is discouraging. Propping her up in the wheelchair is the only thing left to you, but how? Most often I get a Lloyd loom chair from the conservatory and a couple of pillows and try to build a support on one side sufficient to hold her head from sinking to her chest. Though it will take some time yet to understand that in making her more comfortable I'm also encouraging saliva to gather at the back of her throat. She's quiet, so for now I can leave her. I check she's breathing regularly and go back to the kitchen. If I haven't had my own lunch or breakfast, which is normal, as I always like to sort her out first, I can try to eat what's on her plate. If I don't want whatever it is, soup from a tin, tuna and mayonnaise, melted cheese on soft white bread, our resident fox will enjoy yet another feast this evening. But it's not all chores. In some ways, doing something is easy. It's the hanging around, the waiting. I had the radio on the other day and heard a guy talking about what it was like to be on sentry duty guarding a wall. I don't know which wall. The minutes and hours crawling slowly forward to the day's end. And the only thing worse than the waiting was when something happened. 
Someone tried to get over the wall. I know what he means. Yellow alert all day long, and sometimes at night too. The evenings? Well, you know about the wine. And then there's the phone. Phil in France gets the brunt of it, the long stories. I don't watch the television much. I'm just too tired, and the outside world seems too remote to comprehend. If I sound a little hunted, forgive me. I don't mean to complain, only to explain. And it's not all bad. Not at all. There's the satisfaction of a job well done. There's a role, clearly defined, obviously useful, and apparently selfless. And you have to find the humour where you can. For instance, there's an unexpected aspect to my life here, one I suppose I could have anticipated, but didn't. To put it baldly, I now live in a world of women, and having gone to such lengths to meet women online, the irony is not entirely lost to me. The carers are all women. The district nurses, who've come by twice now, are women. Our doctor is a woman. The adult protection inspection a couple of weeks ago was by a woman. I had a call the other day from the SALT team. That was Elizabeth. Then there's Ruby, the Parkinson's nurse. Then there's Anne, the occupational therapist. What the imbalance between the sexes says about the business of caring, about men and women, and about society as a whole, will take up a good deal of space and time to debate. Suffice to say, there is clearly a gender issue finding expression here, however you choose to explain it. Though I did read that 42% of unpaid carers, husbands, brothers, fathers, whatever, are men. Maybe it's men in the professions that support us, who are conspicuous by their absence. As it happens, I feel more at home in this brave new world than some men might. It was my mother and grandmother who were the sources of unconditional love when I was a child. It's my daughters who are the centre of my universe as an adult and who bring yet more unconditional love my way. I have indeed been thoroughly spoiled. And even though I understand such assumptions are both politically incorrect and psychologically rather suspect, they are the result of a positive feedback loop that has seldom let me down. I can rationalise, of course. But don't ask me to actually revise my thinking. I'm an old guy now. Anyway, enough about me. Mum is now the centre of things, which is as it should be. The bungalow has effectively become the smallest care home in the area, with one resident and one carer-manager. The only modification this place needs to be perfect as a care home is a disabled-access wet bathroom. I'm on that right now, getting quotes and pushing to ensure the work gets done before the celebration of life and Mother's homecoming party, now only two weeks away. So there's just time to fit in a round of the dating game for oldies. I did, after all, promise at the end of the first season that I'd reveal some details of those three dates I managed to slip in before Mum's escape from the care home. Funny, it all seems like a lifetime ago now. And I'm sure these short stories happened to someone else altogether, chap I recognise but can't remember. A glorious fool who believed, well, who knows what he believed. The first date was, as it happens, a tad scary. But then I spook easily, especially confronted with heartfelt castration fantasies. If that's a weakness of mine, it's clearly a strong instinct in Monica, a South African woman whose husband ran off with his personal assistant and only very recently, from what I can tell. The swiping movement she makes with her right hand adds conviction 
and a graphic illustration of exactly how she might go about it. We met in a pub called The Windmill. They serve thrice-cooked chips in little tin buckets and sea bass fillets with Thai seasoning on wooden boards. But I'm suddenly not hungry. Not least because I don't want knives, or forks for that matter, anywhere near Monica. I didn't call her again, but I did write an email saying thank you and that whilst it was lovely to meet her, I had thought better of my situation and realised that my new incarnation as a carer would preclude relationships of any meaningful kind. Monica never did write back. Date number two, Geraldine, proved to be a very different affair and one that still makes me smile even today, many moons after the one short evening we spent together. In her profile, she described herself as athletic and tall, neither of which qualities sounded like drawbacks to me. She was already waiting when I arrived at the pub on the edge of the large village green we'd agreed as a rendezvous. There was a moment's embarrassment as we established by looks and gestures that I was almost certainly him, and she was definitely her. When she got out of the car, I was absolutely certain the five-foot-eleven ebony beauty with the figure of a long jumper and the grace of an aristocrat was not just my date for the evening, but also laughably, absurdly, true belle pour moi, as the French so delicately put it. We'd only arranged to meet for a drink, but once we'd sat down opposite one another, she noticed my amusement. When I explained, she demurred politely and even went so far as to find some other reasons why it was unlikely we could make a relationship work. Both her children were indeed British Olympic team athletes and her time was largely dedicated to their needs, which was fabulously gallant of her. We decided to eat together because we both knew this would be the one and only time we'd ever share a meal. We giggled a lot that night. We said goodbye outside the pub with a chaste kiss and a metaphoric bow to the fates. Date three was Melanie. In fact, Melanie turned out to be both date three and date four, which may seem promising in terms of love, but actually wasn't. Not that it was in any way unpleasant. She chose the pub, with a fine garden area out front and a decent menu. The evening was warm enough to sit out. I arrived early and settled myself at an empty table, leaving my tobacco visible and trying to recall if my profile had confessed to my being a smoker. When she arrived, I bought her a drink and came back to find her smoking a straight cigarette and a pack of silk cut on the table. I saw you smoked, which was a relief, she said. She had the most startling and stunning blue eyes. A light electric blue I had to force myself to ignore if I was to concentrate on what she was saying. And I needed to concentrate, because much of the talking we did before going into eat was polite conversation between strangers. How did she know the pub, for instance? How long had I been dating? That kind of thing. Nothing offensive, nothing remarkable, just chat. It was hard work for both of us, in an easy kind of way. And nothing changed as we ate some fish and chips, as I recall. I had the sense she was as anxious to end the evening as I was. When we went to pay the bill at the bar, she realised she'd forgotten her purse. She was embarrassed, but I really didn't mind, and certainly didn't feel the forgotten purse constituted any kind of obligation between us. When, the next day, I got an email from her saying, well, I think you'll agree there's no spark between us, I felt admiration for her directness. Only there was a rider. Melanie did not want me to think that the purse thing had been a deliberate strategy to get a free meal. A thought that hadn't even crossed my mind. 
A week later, she pressed the point, and with only a couple of days to go till Mum came home, I gave in to a lunch on her. The lunch was just like the supper in all respects, bar the fact that this time she'd brought her purse. She dutifully paid for both of us, and when we stepped outside to say our goodbyes and she began to go through the bill, she realised she'd been undercharged by some £20, and her obvious joy at having bucked the system charmed me and made me laugh, which in turn made her laugh. You can't laugh at a potential lover, but we knew we weren't about to be lovers. Any and all tensions on that question had been laid to rest. Though what neither of us realised at the time was that with no romantic motive to meet again, nor was there any obstacle or awkwardness. And so, in a manner of speaking, we had by default become friends. I have no excuse for believing I could have found my Beatrice lurking online. Save grace naivety and the triumph of hope over experience. I had no idea I was now in a world where carers, as the name implies, care. Without complaint, monks and nuns all, and with no needs of their own. Vocation, 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 you might say. As a carer, or trainee carer, it's difficult, impossible really, to express the odd combination of constant visitations and complete isolation your life comprises, and it's easy to feel any sense of self-evaporating, with every day just like every other, and with your own existence reduced to that of a functionary, a bit player, a Rosencrantz with no Guildenstern, an amateur amongst professionals, and a man amongst women. So thank the Lord that today, this afternoon, four of my most favourite women in the world are visiting to see mum, but especially to see me. Ex-wife, two daughters, and Maisie the dog, which is frankly marvellous. out on today's visit. We'll be meeting the family again, I promise. And we'll be adding to the cast of characters with my favourite uncle, Peter, my mum's younger brother, and her oldest friend, Judy. They were at school together in Alexandria in Egypt, more than 70 years ago now. I want to know about mum as a girl, 
on a young woman, who she was before she became my mum. You've been listening to Me Too Mama, written, voiced and produced by the author who must remain anonymous for the sake of his mum. Me Too Mama is a family affair. The assistant producer is the author's daughter, Leah, and the associate producer is the author's sister and now co-carer, Karen. Title music is by Wes Hutchinson, with incidental music by Puddle of Infinity, Unicorn Heads and Huma Huma, all amongst my favourite stars of YouTube's audio library. Every one of them very generously makes their work available to poor producers like me. Original music is by Leah. This podcast is a Me Too Mama production, all rights reserved. Thank you.